This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharif Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Professor Aaron Maisel is one of the mentors featured in Jonathan Anser's recently launched book, Mentors in the Trenches. Professor Maisel grew up in Cape Town in District 6, worked as an archaeologist in Peter Maritzburg, was assistant director of the South African Cultural History Museum, and is now a reader in heritage studies at the University of Newcastle. He joins me now to tell me his story. Professor Maisel, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me onto the program. Professor Maisel, so your name was mentioned by Makosi Koza as one of the heroes, and that's kind of how we came to you yeah. when right, when Jonathan was writing the book, Mentions yes. in the Trenches. Um, and in that chapter, you talk a lot about your own heritage, your, your personal story of your parents being immigrants themselves. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your parents? Yeah, so my, my dad was uh, born in 1908 in a uh, town in Lithuania. I think it was the fifth largest town in Lithuania called Ponyves or Ponoveches in Lithuania. Ponyves is the, the Yiddish name. And uh, his life was disrupted by both the First World War and the Russian Revolution. So at the age of when he was seven in 1915, Russians were retreating and the Germans were advancing. And for some reason... The Russians believed that the Jews in the town, in Ponyvus, were spying on them for the Germans and gave the Jews 24 hours to leave. And his family left in 24 hours. So they first went to uh, Belarus, to Minsk, or a place close to Minsk, where his father came from. We're not exactly sure which year it was, 1916 or 17. They traveled south to the Black Sea area because he had bad asthma. And that area was believed to be conducive you know, to people with, with asthma. So his family himself, his uh, father and mother and his brother, who was two years older than him, moved ironically to where the fighting is, you know, the heavy, intense fighting is, is taking place at the moment. When they were there, the Russian Revolution occurred. His father had trained as a rabbi, but never took shmichut, never actually practiced as a rabbi. But he was literate. He could read and write. So he was used as some kind of administrator in a local police station. So my father remembers the, you know, the comings and the goings, or used to remember, of the different uh, forces during the revolution. And he basically uh, lived on the streets. You know, he, there was no schooling, nothing like that. So he, in his life, he probably had about six months formal schooling with a governor or governess of some kind. And then they returned to Ponyvis. Now he was with his mother, and I'm not sure why it was just him and his mother and what happened to his father and his brother, but they all returned. Um, because he tells a story about, he used to tell a story about crossing the border and being robbed and, and so on. But they were back in Ponyvis in 1922. The situation wasn't great. It was really an economic problem that he had. There was no work. So in 1929, he left for South Africa. He, was, uh, he had people he knew in Cape Town, lunch lights. And he teamed up with one of them. They ran, from what I understand, a fish and chip shop in Paul for a long time. And then he went back in 1937 to see his parents. But he couldn't go back into Ponyvis or back into Lithuania because he had come through London and saw his name, or he was told that his name was on a book, that he was wanted as a deserter from the army. So he couldn't go back in, but he went to Latvia and got his parents to visit, to come to a place called Dvinsk in Latvia. And they spent a week together. And then he returned to South Africa and they went back to Ponyvis and then they perished on the 23rd of August, 1941, in a massacre of about 7,500 people in a forest just outside Ponyvis. And I, I was privileged to visit the massacre site in 2011. I'd hoped to go back in 
2021 for the 80th anniversary, but I wasn't able to do that because of the pandemic. My mother has a less dramatic story in the sense that her father also left in 1929, ironically, to South Africa, leaving behind his wife, my mother, who was the oldest child and three younger brothers. And he worked for six years and was able to raise enough cash to bring them out to South Africa. My mother arrived in South Africa in 1935 at the age of 13. She and my dad didn't know each other in Lithuania. They had a big age gap, 14 years. She wasn't from Ponyavis. She was from a small town or a large village called Rimagola, which was only, you know, I discovered when I visited Lithuania. I didn't know this before. It was only about 25, 30 kilometers from Ponyavis. So they grew up in the same area, but didn't know each other. The families didn't know each other. And they met in 1948, I think it was, on Musenberg Beach in Cape Town. And uh, they got married and then they had seven children in very quick succession in 11 years. And you were the middle one, Aaron. And um, I, I was the middle one, yes. I always make the joke that I'm the most balanced because I was in the middle. <laughs> I'm not sure what your siblings say about that. Your father ended up with a shop in District 6. Yeah, so um, in 1940, although... Uh, one of my brothers thinks 1939, but I, I think for 1940, my godfather, who was Dave Whitten, he ran the shop in District 6 to begin with, this, this uh, grocery shop. And um, he went to the war in North Africa. So he was in North Africa. I think he was a driver, I'm not sure. And my dad took the shop from him, bought the shop from him, and that went to 1974. So, But Dave Whitten was very much a part of our lives growing up. He, uh, he was a bachelor. He was like an uncle to us, and he was my godfather. So he stayed in our lives right through to when he died in 1992. My wife, in fact, I was in Cape Town at the time. My wife went with my father, I think, to the flat when Uncle Dave died. Yeah. So he, my dad had the shop since 1940 to 74. And, and then, of course, um, apartheid happened and District 6 was destroyed. Absolutely. And it impacted on both you and your dad. Well, all of us, really, because, you know, my father, he was 66 at the time and he'd worked for him. It seems like, you know, it always worked for himself in the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s onwards. And suddenly he, at the age of 66, with no qualifications of any kind, he obviously had a lot of experience of, of running a shop. He found himself with, I think it was myself in the army, uh, wanting to go to university, and three, three children after me, all at, you know, at Hertzfield School, high school, which is a, a private school. And he wanted to give us the opportunity to go to university as well. So it was a difficult situation for him. But he worked for a couple of years, which I think he found difficult. And then he, you know, in the sort of late 60s, he retired and we owned the block of flats that we lived in. It was uh, four different flats, although we occupied the two lower floors. So he, he got some income from the flats going forward, but it wasn't easy. And especially when in later in their lives, medical bills began to pile up. So, yeah, it wasn't easy for them, but they got by. They saw out their lives quite happily. Professor Maisel, your involvement in the struggle was influenced a lot by that. What did you do? As I mentioned in Menches and Trenches, I was political, but on campus, I never got involved much in political activities. I, would, I went to protests on campus and stuff like that, but it really emerged when I got to Peter Maritzburg. And we became friendly, myself and my wife, Anne, who I've been together with since the late 70s. And uh, we got to know people in, first in an organization called AFRA, the Association for Real Advancement. And then I joined through a friend, something called the Committee of, I can't remember it now, but the, the forerunner to, to the UDF, the United Democratic Front, in Maritzburg in the early 1980s, and uh, started getting involved in activities like the tricameral, you know, the million signature campaign, 
the anti-tricameral parliament protests that were going on. You know, from then onwards, I always had this commitment. I was part of the UDF. I would go to meetings. We'd go on marches. And then from about the mid-80s, we started taking people into our homes to, to look after Maritzburg. And it's not sufficiently well known across South Africa, the intense struggle that took place in and around Peter Maritzburg from the mid-80s onwards. There was a really intense, hard-fought battle between Encarta in the forces of the state on the one hand, and the UDF, which I suppose was the proxy for the ANC inside, inside South Africa. And it was that we, we took people into our homes. We gave them protection as much as we could. And some stay a few nights and then leave, either go back to their homes, move on to other houses, or you know leave the country. We were quite firm with the people who came into our houses because we lived in a particular kind of way. And we felt that they should do so as well, which meant that they, if they needed something, they needed to ask. They couldn't just help themselves to stop in the fridge, for example. And then Makosi Koza came in, I think it was September 85. Uh, she was 15 years old. I think she remembers at 14, but it was, I think she was 15 because she grew up. She was born on the 12th of December, 1969. And roughly at the same time as Makosi came into our house, I started using my camera more and more. I'd always, as an archaeologist, which you mentioned, a lot of my work, certainly when I was in the field with rock paintings and with excavations involved photography. So I had cameras and I enjoyed photography. So really it was a, a twin track. It was supporting my course in the family and, and other people as well at the same time, and then photographing. And I would get called and go and photograph events where I was the only, in many cases, I was the only Mlungu, I was the only white person there. And then as much as I can, I would try and get the photographs out. One point, there were about five of us and we for, formed something called the Peter Marisburg Photographic Collective. It wasn't usually successful as a collective, but we did manage to, to put on a, an exhibition countering the festivities or the events to celebrate 150 years of the founding of Peter Marisburg in 1988. Professor so, Maisel, were you harassed by the police? Were you ever harassed by the police? Occasionally when I was photographing, people would you know, say, Maisel, don't photograph us and, and stuff like that once or twice outside. Because the museum that I worked at and the police station were right next to each other. And once I was waiting to, with my camera bag to be, and I think I might have had a camera slung over my shoulder, to be collected by, I think it was a, a union organ organizer to go and photograph a play that they were uh, putting on to, for publicity shots. And I was a, a policeman that came across me, a black policeman who I think had been sent by a white policeman to tell me not to photograph the police. But over and above that, I, I wasn't harassed. And they never, ever came looking for my course at our house. I, whether they knew or, or didn't know that she was living with us, I don't know. I suspect that they must have because there were, you know, there were very strong police links you know, into the township and they had quite an effective fire system. You know, there were small things like someone came to our house looking for Jonathan Kaplan, who lived with us. Jonathan was a member of the ECC and jostled my wife on, on the stairs. She really had one kid. She was pregnant with another uh, child on, on the way, uh, Rebecca, and insulted her. There were small things like that, but I was never, you know, picked up. I was never questioned. No. The use of archaeology, it's a powerful tool. And at the time you were doing it, there were different accounts of culture, let's call it in, yeah, in its broader yeah. sense. To what extent do you feel that as, as your work as an archaeologist also helped to shape South African history? You know, for me, in the early 1980s, when I first started my PhD work in, in KwaZulu-Natal, so I'd, really, I'd spent two years working in the mountains, 
recording paintings. But then I, I worked in the Together Basin, excavating rock shelters. When I started that process, I was very much influenced by something, we, if we better, want of a better phrase, the ecological model, which in a sense meant that people were influenced by the environment in, in that they adapted to the environment. So in other words, they were passive actors and did what the environment, inverted commas, told them to do. I flipped my understanding through my political involvement and thinking about what the implications of that model was that people were passive and turned to a social theoretical understanding of the past to try and understand the past in terms of people being active uh, and that they had choices. They didn't have to do there wasn't one prescribed set of uh, activities or processes determined by the environment. Yes, the environment was there and it was like a negatively determining factor. But within that, people made their own history. And that it resonated with me because that's what was happening in South Africa at the time. People were making their own histories. Of course, the party government prescribed in a way how things would be. But within that, people could make their own histories. And so it was very much a, a back and forth between my political beliefs and how that informed what I was doing archaeologically and continues to do so. Well, as a young archaeology student, yours were my preferred papers, so I thank you for that on a personal level. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Professor Mazel, we've run out of time, but thank you for joining me and good luck with your research. And if anybody would like to know more about uh, Professor Aaron Mazel's story, he is one of the mentors mentioned in the book, Mentors in the Trenches, written by Jonathan Anser, recently launched. Professor Mazel, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Doug. Have a good day.